This is Lost or Found, the podcast where we think about how we can live healthier, happier, and more fulfilled lives. And now, here's the host of the show, Dr. Michelle Choi. Hello, friends. We are at episode 111, and I'm so excited to talk about today's topic, moral injury in medicine. In the medical field, people openly talk about burnout, but we do not openly talk about moral injury because it's a systemic problem that puts to question the basis in which medicine is practiced. In my opinion, I feel that the burnout that doctors and medical staff feel is actually moral injury. It occurs when one feels that they have violated their conscious or moral compass based on what they partake in, witness, or fail to prevent an act that goes against their moral values or principles. This happens all the time in the practice of medicine, and while moral injury can exist anywhere, it's particularly hard in medicine because someone's health and life is on the line. I know that many of my listeners know this, but as a primary care doctor, I felt like a liar. It's also been hard to find a doctor to talk openly about this topic because it's taboo and considered risky. That is until I met the courageous and compassionate Dr. Tara Sood. Dr. Sood is a seasoned physician holding dual board certifications in emergency medicine and lifestyle medicine, boasting 18 years of experience in high volume emergency departments. Complementing her clinical work, Dr. Sood extends her passion for healing to international humanitarian aid. With seven years of hands-on experience in disaster relief and refugee care, she serves as a technical consultant for the International Medical Corps, IMC, leveraging her skills to enhance healthcare access for vulnerable communities worldwide. Outside of her medical practice, she finds joy in fostering dogs from a local rescue organization. Specializing in rehabilitating psychologically withdrawn dogs who have endured abuse and neglect, she provides them with care and attention, helping them heal and rebuild trust in humans. Hello, Dr. Tara Sood, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Michelle. I appreciate you having me. This has been, I have been listening to your show for, I want to say almost a year and a half consistently. So it's, it's really an exciting time for me to be talking to you. <laughs> oh my goodness. I'm so grateful. Thank you. And I'm really excited about today's conversation because I think it's a really, really important topic. And to be honest with you, I really could not find a doctor to speak about this with. It's so sensitive. Absolutely. It is It is a very sensitive topic, not just because <clears throat> we're talking about personal things, but also because we're talking about our profession in general. And it never feels good to point out things that you feel need to be better. <laughs> so hopefully, as time goes on, the topic we're talking about will become normal conversation. We will normalize it because we can't expect to fix problems that we are not okay even naming. Exactly. And I think a lot of us are afraid of like the repercussions about talking about the injury that we're all experiencing, or I think many of us are experiencing. Absolutely. Is it okay with you if I begin by defining moral injury? Please take it away. <laughs> so, you know, can I actually ask you, when did you first hear about the term moral injury? So for most physicians, this term did not become common knowledge until COVID. Uh, for me, I first came about it in 2018. Um and it was in the setting of working in humanitarian aid. Uh, burnout and moral injury are common uh, outcomes when you work in humanitarian aid, just based on the settings that you work in and uh, 
the types of circumstances and um, the horrors that you you uh, witness as part of what you're doing. Um, so I first came about that term in two thousand around two thousand eighteen. Yeah, I think for me it was even more recent. I learned about it a year ago. And for the longest time, I thought I was experiencing burnout. And I think there's a big difference there, you know. And if I mean, I think the the term first was coined by actually a psychiatrist, Jonathan Shea, to describe the wounds that form when a person's sense of right is betrayed by leaders in high stake situations or when one feels like they violated their conscience or moral compass based on what they partake in and they witness or fail to prevent. Um, and it disobeys like their own moral values and principles. And I was mentioning to you that, you know, for the longest time I thought I was experiencing burnout. I had no idea what this term was. And I think it's really, really important to differentiate because burnout, the way I see that term, it's like you almost blame it on yourself, like you are responsible for burning out. While moral injury, I think it indicates that there's a bigger problem at large. I, I agree with you. And the way the burnout sounds, it almost feels like it's an individual responsibility. Burnout is not limited to professionals who work in healthcare. It occurs in every sector, right? Burnout can happen to anybody in any profession. Um, in all of these professions, I think the one common theme is burnout isn't just an individual responsibility. It's not because you didn't do enough yoga or you didn't gratitude journal enough or you didn't drink enough water. It's basically a systemic problem. And calling it burnout allows systems to put the blame on individuals instead of seeing what the systemic problems are that are leading to burnout. Um, and moral injury is specific to medicine, in my opinion, only because of the type of, the type of work that we do. Um, I, I'm sure it can be extended to other professions too, but um, in medicine, it's definitely uh, a large factor why people leave their uh, careers or leave their jobs. Yeah, I think like something that we're not aware of is I think when you're ethically challenged in your workplace, and that's very, very hard to identify because we were like trained to work like this. And the fact that maybe you're having a hard time or you're not surviving well, it's not taken well individually or even within the system. But it, the game really changes when you are ethically challenged with how you're working and how you thought you were supposed to be as a doctor. Exactly, exactly. May I share a personal story? This is going back uh, in 2017. I was working in Bangladesh at the uh, Kutupalong refugee camp. And for anybody who doesn't know the background of that camp at that time and, and uh, in years leading up to that time, the Rohingya uh, minorities in Myanmar were being driven out of Myanmar and they were fleeing into Bangladesh. And um, the... When I was there, the camp had grown almost up to 800,000 people living in small huts, very, very uh, impoverished conditions at that time. And when I was working uh, one of the days, I, uh, we had this um, father who carried in his daughter wrapped in a blanket, and I was running the emergency department version of our little uh, clinic there. So he brought her in and immediately I knew she wasn't doing well because she uh, wasn't really arousable. She um, uh, had labored breathing. Her temperature very, was very high. It was very obvious to me this kid was in sepsis. So we tried to resuscitate her and despite all our efforts, um, she ended up uh, losing her um, and then we ended up trying to res resuscitate her, but we were not successful in the resuscitation. 
Um, during this time, we the translator was trying to get more information from the father. And the story went something like, um, this kid, uh, they and her father had, uh, they, uh, they fled from Myanmar because the military came to their village, burned down their house, and her mother and her infant brother died in that fire. And she and her father were able to flee, and they had been in the refugee camp for, I believe, a few weeks to a month or two at that point before she got sick. And the father was working as a day laborer and wasn't home during sunlight hours, or it's not really even a home, it's a hut, right? Um, so he, she ended up uh, getting ill, and after his job, he tried to bring her to our clinic, and our clinic had very strict hours because we had to be out of the clinic before the sun goes down for safety reasons. So one of the days she was turned away because we already had enough people and we were closing. I, I didn't see any of this, but this was just the story he had, was telling. The second day he came in, but the clinic was closed because we close on Fridays because Friday is a sacred day in Bangladesh. So our translators are required to have that day off and we cannot work when there's no translators. Um, so Friday we were closed and she, he brought her in on a Saturday. And by then she had already gotten so sick that there was, there was no turning it around. And the sad part was this child just had measles. Um, her death could have been prevented with something as cheap as a dollar in, in spent in immunization. So it was, it was multiple layers of failure on the world's behalf that led to this kid dying in a refugee camp. You know, it's, um, it, it, it was very hard for all, all of us uh, who were taking care of her. But anyway, we, um, as a physician, I've, at that point, I had been practicing for 10 plus years and I've seen my share of people passing away. And I know there's grief, there's sadness, and that's part of my job. And it's um it's you you learn to live with it and you learn to move on and being the stubborn ER doctor I didn't think much about it and uh my work went on and I finished my deployment I came home and when I came home I had a very tough time sleeping well and I would wake up with nightmares and it wasn't completely non-specific nightmares and I take a lot of pride in my ability to sleep through anything. So this was this was a little surprising. And um, a couple months went by and it would be simple things like increased irritability. And then you go, oh, that's because I'm not sleeping well. I'm just jet lagged. And I had all these excuses. Um, but anyway, the, the end came. I had to go to a training where they train you how to respond in difficult situations, like if you're kidnapped while you're working internationally, how to conduct yourself, how to stay healthy. Um, so this training that I went to, they had a psychological assessment that you had to do beforehand to be sure that you are fit enough to go through the training. So during the psychological assessment, I, I, didn't, I thought I scored great. I submitted my results. And then the next day, I got a phone call from the the training uh, psychologist saying, we had some red flags in your survey and we would like to speak with you. So we spoke at length at that time and he was the first one who recognized that the, the symptoms that I had been having that I just thought was jet lag or fatigue or, you know, there's all these excuses were actually uh, stemming from this event. And the reason this event was significantly harder than any other loss that I have experienced in my career was the feeling of we should have been able to do more, but we failed her. And, and he defined that as that's called moral injury. So, so that's what led me to learning about moral injury and seeking out resources about how to um, work with it and how to minimize it. Um, and 
to me, the turmoil injury didn't become more uh, prevalent in our profession until COVID hit and these experiences became um, very apparent to everybody that we were giving care in a way that we didn't feel right. It's interesting how you bring it up because, you know, the organization that you were working for in the foreign countries understood what you were experiencing and understood that that exists. While I think in healthcare in America knows that that exists, but doesn't bring it up, you know, or like the grief that a lot of doctors experience from the work that we do, or even nurses, you know, because something that you said, you know, that we didn't do enough for her. And I think individually, when you're a medical staff or doctor, you think, I didn't do enough for her. And I think a lot of a, a lot of us suffer from that. And there is no psychological assessment. That's the last thing that sometimes they want to occur in corporate medicine, you know, because sometimes no one wants to know. And I think that's a huge problem. Uh, you're 100% right. Uh, it's It's... It's really unfortunate because I do think that we can take better care of our healthcare workers to allow them to enjoy their job more, to allow them to last in their careers longer. Um, the the cost of replacing a physician is anywhere between uh, half a million to a million dollars lost in revenue. So for every physician who leaves practice sooner than they are ready to leave, the healthcare system is losing money on that. Um, for, and the cost of um, uh, the lost revenue itself from uh, burnout and other uh, issues is estimated to be anywhere from three to $6 billion a year, which is quite a significant amount. And all of that if we put in the effort to work towards it, um, could be mitigated. Yeah. And I think something that really brought moral injury to light in doctors is that our New York Times article by Eduardo Ballerini, The Moral Crisis of America's Doctors, which was published originally in July of 2023, and so came out this discussion. But something that the way they started off that article was that They talk about the suicide rate of doctors, uh, you know, being greater than that of active military members. And there was a psychiatrist, Wendy Dean, who started to ask doctors how they were doing. And many confided in her that they were struggling. And based on her survey, she realized that, you know, many doctors are not unhappy from burnout or working too hard, but because the healthcare system made it difficult for them to care for the patients. Absolutely. That, that definition of moral injury. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and she was, anyway, something that the article brought out was that many were complaining that, you know, by not, they, were, they weren't having enough time talking with the patients because they were so busy filling out electronic medical records which was also the bane of my existence. I mean, that wasn't the only problem, but that certainly didn't help, you know? Yes, there's so many things competing for physicians' attention in every specialty. Uh, for me specifically in emergency medicine, there's there's EMR, there's sometimes I don't get to control how many patients walk in through the door um, and I don't get to control how sick they come in through the door, you know? And and on top of that, when we have nursing shortages or tech shortages or um, even simple things like uh, supplies, like if it takes me 15 minutes to find something that's 15 minutes that I didn't get to spend with patients, there's a lot of things competing for my time in any given shift. And the time has to come from something else, right? I 
I, I, I'm, I, I can only be at one place at any given time. So when that time is taken away by tasks that, that um, uh, should be easier, that time comes from my FaceTime with my patients, right? So in the end, the person who suffers the consequences is always the patient because they didn't get to have me explain things better. They didn't get to have me explain the side effects of the medications I was prescribing or why one medication is better than another medication or even ask them, would one way work better for them than another way? Like we didn't get to discuss um, what would actually work for them. So so in the end, all these uh, competing interests, the time really comes from the time that you spend with your patients. So uh, a friend of mine likes to say, uh, doctors should be just allowed to doctor. <laughs> when when doctors get to doctor, patients have better outcomes. Um, and unfortunately, that's not always the case. I mean, I think that's definitely not the case. I think corporate medicine is taking over America, you know, and people may not realize this, but the doctor typically does not have autonomy, you know, like even though we're professional skilled workers, the way we work, you know, when it's based on speed, efficiency and RVUs, where which is like, a, you know, metric used to like measure like physical reimburse, physician reimbursement, that's doctors don't work by autonomy. We work almost kind of like a manual laborer or like a you know or a warehouse employee like there's there's revenue that we need to make and a lot of times it's on our efficiency or how fast we are and there's so much that gets unfortunately missed when we work like that and I think even like our it's what's I think the main contributor to our feeling ethically challenged or morally challenged I 100% agree with you we we measure and quantify our output um, based on things that don't always translate into actually be, being good at what you do, right? Uh, the more patients you see in an hour does not mean that you're actually doing a good job, right? So there has to be some way to give feedback for us to continue to be better. However, we have probably taken it to the extreme in terms of quantifying the things that probably don't make us better in the long run. They make us worse at our jobs. And that's where the moral injury comes from, because you go to work and you expect to give a certain quality of care, but you see yourself falling short all the time. And then you keep questioning, why am I doing this? Like, I'm not enjoying this. And my patients are certainly not getting good quality care. So, so something has to change. No, definitely. And I think the driver is, you know, the driver of the productivity is not the care. It's how it's what's being, it's, it's the dollars that are being made, you know, on an hourly basis. And I think there may be people who don't empathize with doctors as much because, you know, doctors in general, compared to like the main population, you know, make more money. But I think when the quality of medical care that you are receiving, if it kind of sucks, I think it's something that all of us need to think about, like, why? Absolutely. And um, as I say, I feel like doctors need better PR. Because <laughs> It, yeah, it or almost, even like a union, like doctors are not allowed to have a union, like no one sticks up for our rights, you know? It almost feels like you are advocating for the patient, but nobody is listening to your advocating because somehow you being compensated well means what you're saying is irrelevant, which, which, is, just, which is just a way to shut you up. I love what you're saying, because when we talk about moral injury in medicine, not everyone complains about moral injury, where they're like thinking about what they, they're, the Hippocratic oath that they are take, they've taken and how they practice. Like typically like clinicians and higher paying, paying subspecialties don't think about it, you know, but I think the ER, ER doctors, and I think primary care doctors are at the forefront, you know? 
And something that you brought up, and this is what the article states too, <clears throat> they were saying that um, nearly 20% of the 389 ER doctors surveyed said that they have been threatened for raising quality of care concerns and pressure to make decisions based on financial considerations that could be detrimental to the people in their care. This one hits me really hard because it's so true. 20% is a lot, you know? And when I think about, when I really think about this, like retrospect in my past organization, right? You know, you, you get partnered after a certain number of years into the organization, but the ones whose partnership was delayed, in my opinion, were not because they were bad doctors, but because they brought up problems. Yes. You know, and I, and I bring this up because when I was working as a hospital doctor, like, you know, full time, I was a good, efficient doctor. I never complained. I was so like pious to the organization. Like even if I was feeling terribly, I had a smile on my face and I did the work, even if it took me till 10 p.m., you know? And those, and that's the kind of the doctor that's wanted in the, in the organization, not the ones who bring up quality of care issues or who bring up good points, frankly, now that I think about it 10 years later, you know? <laughs> so it's, um, you, and everything you just said, that is what you were trained to do, right? Like if you think about medical school, if you think about residency, you were never actually trained to tell the truth or advocate for the patient. You were taught to suffer and you were taught to absorb the issues within the system and make it an individual problem. So if, if there weren't enough nurses to do what needs to be done in residency, the residents did the nurse's job, right? So you were just taught to make up for the deficiencies in the system. And over time, I mean, you went through a minimum of like seven, eight years of training, right? So in that time, you eventually learn to keep your mouth shut and just absorb, like be the solution to the problem in the system, but never actually say the system has a problem. So when you start saying the system has a problem, one of the first responses that I at least got is, I mean, not in these words, but basically you get paid enough, so you need to shut the fuck up, right? So, but the, like me getting paid enough has nothing to do with the fact that the patients are getting poor care, right? So just because I am compensated well enough, that doesn't mean I am blind to the fact that I'm providing care that I am ethically not okay with. Um, so it's, it's, it's just a way for corporations to be able to tell you that your, your concerns about patient care and patient safety are irrelevant. Um, we're technicians and, you know, you bring up certain points and I, you know, I totally agree. I think medical school is definitely a form of grooming, you know, and I think in that grooming, you have to behave, right? Or you're penalized for not behaving and then you fold in, you, you fit into that mold. And at the time, I, you know, as a, as like a, you know, resident in a university setting, you feel like you have the right to ask questions, right? But the reality becomes if you're like the majority of us and many are, majority are not in private practice, you answer to someone and that's someone's corporate medicine. You don't really know who your bosses are, but the, but the, <clears throat> you know, the demands are falling from top down. They don't want to hear your voice. It doesn't matter, you know. And there's another point that you brought up, you know. I think the truth is sometimes I think about like, you know, our ERs are terribly erratic now. So much busier. If you're just a regular person who wants to find a primary care doctor, I mean, or, or make an appointment, in reality, you have to wait months. And I think this is a result of the system, you know, like when you only have like seven minutes to assess your patient or you're constantly in a rush, 
the likelihood that something is really going to get fixed is null. So there is this pro- constant problem where it doesn't run, it doesn't get better. People are rushing into the ER because they can't get an e- uh, you know, a primary care appointment. But even in the primary care appointment, nothing's getting fixed. It's this horrible cycle right now where nothing is really getting fixed. However, if you're dying, it'll help you. But if you really want to work at your problem, it's totally ineffective. Yeah. And maybe you wouldn't be dying if these problems were fixed ahead of time. <laughs> they, we really fail at preventive care, right? So it's, um, it's, it's the emergency departments are most certainly propping up a broken primary care system. Um, and, and it's reflected in uh, the number of applicants that uh, emergency medicine is receiving, right? So when I was matching into emergency medicine, it was one of the most competitive uh, residencies to match into, right? So, and, and it got worse and worse and worse. Like we, like when I was chief resident, most of the people we were uh, getting giving interviews to even were all Ivy League graduates. Like it was just insane how competitive emergency medicine got. And then uh, things changed when uh, several new but less uh, robust programs started popping up all over the country, which essentially are owned by uh, venture capitalist groups. So this is basically you churn out your own EM residencies, and then you keep those EM resident graduates working in your practices that are owned, again, by venture capitalist groups. So it basically became a um, uh, assembly line of emergency physicians where- Trained the way you like. Trained and also to- also cheap labor. Exactly. Exactly. Even though uh, you have to teach them well, <laughs> hopefully, you know, but it's cheap labor. Exactly. It's cheap labor. They get used to your system. And then when they come out and you offer them a job at your, you know, private firm, <laughs> they take it because they don't know any better. Right. So you you train them while they're young. Um, so last I believe it was last year, something like 500 slots in emergency medicine went unfulf- unfilled. And before. So. um People, medical students are catching on that that this is not a sustainable career for them, and and it makes sense because the burnout rate in emergency medicine is very high. Um, the average um, uh, length of career for a female physician is on average twelve to fourteen years. So you trained for 12 years to get to this point. So imagine just being able to only work 12 years in the career that you thought was going to be a 30-year career. Um, so it's emergency medicine is definitely having, um, it, it will need to reflect on how we can make this specialty sustainable in the long run. Yeah. And I think, you know, the problem lies at the system at large. Like, how do you fix that? You know? And I think with like, like I was saying before, it's really, it was really hard to find a doctor to talk about moral injury. Many of us are like really afraid of the repercussions, you know? And I think like, I'm not sure if doctors are the one who can change the system. Actually, I think it's, it's the patients. If the patients understand the quality of care that they are getting and what they could be getting, then it's like you have to demand for more, you know, like we don't have a union to protect doctors, you know, like, and many of us are afraid. Yeah. Um, I do think the solutions have to come from every level. We, we do need doctors to be able to stand up and say, this is not okay. Right. I mean, let's be honest, as a profession, we're probably one of the most risk aversive people to begin with, right? You don't sign up to go to school forever if if 
if you know you're not the person who ate the marshmallow in the five minutes you you're waiting you're you're very risk averse in general or like even in our training we learn about medical liability very quickly early on that's like one of the first terms you know before like you realize what an aorta is you know like (laughs) this is very true so um but i do think that physicians will need to speak up and and demand better working conditions because or else our patients will continue to suffer and you get compensated enough so you don't get to complain is is not okay anymore because we're not asking for better conditions just for ourselves we're asking for better conditions so our patients can have better outcomes um i mean the studies already show when physicians are burnt out the even even simple things like when an orthopedist is burnt out and they perform hip replacements, the patients take longer <laughs> to recover from their hip replacement and patients are less likely to take recommendations from physicians who appear uninterested because they're not expressing compassion because they're burnt out. So there's there's a lot of consequences and in the end, the patients and the physicians are both suffering. So solutions do need to come from both of them. Nobody's coming to rescue us. It, it, we do have to work to make things better. Yeah. And I really do think like if patients are the one who suffer the most in this scenario, right? The scapegoat is actually the doctor. You know, even though we didn't cause the problems, the scapegoat is the doctor. It's not what's behind the doctor or who the the umbrella with whom, you know, under whom the doctor works. It's the doctor. You know, I think that really needs to be clear. Yes. You're, you're, we're 100% the scapegoat for a dysfunctional system. I thought it was really interesting in that article, and I thought it was particularly damning when they quoted that more than 70% of emergency physicians agreed that uh, corporatization of their field has had a negative or strongly negative impact on the quality of care and on their job satisfaction. Yeah, that's lower than I would have expected. I Who are these other 30%? (laughs) Maybe they haven't felt it yet. Or, you know, like many of us, I mean, like, how long were you ignorant of your feelings before you recognize what they are? And isn't that the majority of us? Like, no one does a psychological assessment in our line of work. I didn't know that I was experiencing chest pain until it went away. Like, that's how blind I was. Like, I had been experiencing it for months. And you're, you become really blind when it's to yourself. And something else that I wanted to bring up, like I was wondering if you had this moment because I think before you think about things, it's hard when you've made a lot of sacrifices or compromises to get to this position. You know, like there were a lot of sacrifices and to say, oh shit, there's a problem means like, what have I done and how much did I contribute? How much did I put into this for me to feel this way now? It's like scary, you know? You are a hundred percent right, Michelle, because it's, um, it's, you, you go through your medical training, right? Like you, you went through undergrad, you had friends and your friends chose different career paths and, and you're, um, you chose to go to medical school, and in those four years, you were a social recluse. And then you came out into residency, and you were working minimum eighty-hour weeks, right? And during all that, you kept telling yourself, "Once I'm done with this, things will be better, right? I will have reached the promised land. I will be the doctor that I wanted to be ever since I was a little kid, or whatever your dreams were." So there's a lot, and and then when you hopefully by the time you turn 30 or so, you you are now a full-fledged attending, right? And by that point, you have invested so much of your life attaining this goal. You don't even want to acknowledge for a minute, maybe this goal has some downsides to it and it isn't as good as you thought it was going to be, right? So I, I 
really can't fault people for not wanting to talk about moral injury and not wanting to even acknowledge moral injury is a huge part of her careers because it you have invested so much into it having this conversation means maybe everything that you invested into it isn't bearing fruit <laughs> so which i don't think is correct um i think there's uh, systemic problems in our profession but if I had to do it all over again, I, it's still exactly what I would do. I would not choose any other. This is my calling. And yes, there's problems. Yes, moral injury is a huge factor. But I still love what I do. Um, but I, do you practice in a different way, though? Yes. I I absolutely would practice in a different way. I am practicing in a different uh, setting now, and I'm very happy with it. Um, I probably would... If I could go backwards, I would essentially give myself permission to notice when the moral injury is happening and immediately change practices and not assume it's something that I am doing or not enough yoga or not enough meditation or, you know, all these other personal things that you factor into uh, be before realizing, wait a minute, this is a systemic problem. This is not a mm -hmm. me problem. Tara, don't you feel like you realized it was a systemic problem, like, when you were leaving? Like, I didn't realize it was a systemic problem until I was, like, leaving. And it took me, like, a year to even grieve accepting it. Do you know what I mean? Because I think with being a doctor, being groomed to survive, no matter what the circumstance, no matter how much pain you experience, either physically, emotionally, or spiritually, right? Like we even grieve our patients, even though a lot of times we just suppress it, right? It took me like about a year grieving for a job that I hated because I still had a hard time coming to terms with it, even though I saw it. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I couldn't accept it myself. Like I fought it. Like, you know, I was like, I was supposed to be strong and here I am quitting and angry, I'm like, what the hell, you know? Because you have no role models, Michelle. You can't, you can't think something exists that you have never seen before, right? Like, if you had known somebody who had this conversation with you when you were in medical school and you knew that this was a possibility, it, your experience would have been very different. It would have been a lot easier for you to see it clearly that it was a systemic problem and it's not a you problem, right? No role models because we don't talk about things like this. We don't, we don't, um, we're not allowed to. <laughs> totally. And I think, you know, like there's stages too, you know, and there's a, there is a stage where I felt depleted, but then you internalize how badly you feel like you suck, you know? working for the system you don't realize the system's a huge part of the problem part of the problem but there is a huge period very long period where i really legitimately just felt like i sucked you know and then it becomes it, it, it kind of the feelings change you go through another stage <laughs> i ended with anger and then i went into full onset grief you know or depression, actually. It's even hard for me to say that, dude. It's like... Yeah. I think my experience was a little bit different from yours only because I had previous experience in it. Um, had I not had that experience, I am certain my experience this time around would have been exactly what your experience was. Um, only because I had previously experienced moral injury and somebody had given me that terminology to think uh, in terms of, I, I, I think for me, the timeline was a little bit different, but still went through all those stages of feeling like, is it me? Like, am I just not competent anymore? How come everybody else can work here and not have any bad feelings about what we're doing? Why am I the only one complaining? And Obviously, I wasn't the only one complaining, but it still, to me, felt like I was the only one complaining. And anytime I brought up issues, 
I was made to feel like I am the only one complaining, even though that was not, not, that was not actually the case. Yeah. Uh, I think when you like talk about something they don't want to hear in the system, it's like you choose to have a scarlet letter. You're the person with the scarlet letter. Like, even though you're like, you could still be smart. The fact that you talk about something that has a little, mm, you know, and can I ask you in 2018, when the term was brought up to you, moral injury, what did that organization like? How did they help you? Um, it wasn't much, but even the little that they did, I felt had uh, long term consequences for me. I had been working in humanitarian aid since 2016. So this wasn't um, there was this was st- pretty farther along in my career in humanitarian aid. So when when he first mentioned it, I felt very defensive. I was like, I have seen so many children die. I have worked in so many refugee camps. I have done this and that, and there is no way this this incident would affect me any. You know, like I felt extremely defensive that he was accusing me of not being strong enough to handle it, right? Um, and and my walls went up immediately. And in my first thought was, I should have never filled out that assessment, honestly. <laughs> which which again is not the right answer, but that was that was what. Yeah, I think we see it as an attack, right? Yeah. Like. I'm supposed I, to be well. What do you mean? <laughs> yes, I, <laughs> I absolutely took it as a personal attack. And I was like, what What the hell does this mean? I, you know, at that point, I had been a doctor for over a decade. And I had seen shootings, gang violence, refugee camps, disasters, you name it. I've seen it, right? So I certainly took it. I was very offended. Um And but then he he persisted. And he was like, this is this has nothing to do with how tough you are or how how much you can endure. This is, and, and he basically explained it to me as, um, um, he gave me a little historic perspective, which basically was, uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember it exactly, but basically moral injury came from the military, right? So when soldiers came back, we knew about PTSD and at this point, and we were treating all soldiers with PTSD the same way. But then they eventually realized that there's actually a difference. Soldiers that had uh, suffered uh, a risk to their life had needed different treatment because that was an attack on their mortality. Whereas soldiers who suffered from moral injury, the attack wasn't always on their mortality, the attack was on their morality. And they required different treatment to get better. So so the way he explained it, it, it helped me understand a little bit more that this is not a personal attack on me. Like the fact that I was in a position where I had to witness something that to me, felt like the world and the system and me, all of us had failed this child, is going to leave behind consequences. And you have to work through that um, to, to be able to move on in a way that you do not carry that with you to the next patient that you see, right? Uh, and, and that was very helpful. He did give me some resources to read and I read them and I continued to read more about it over the years um, just because I found it so fascinating uh, to learn more. And it's not something that I expected to happen in my emergency medicine career, however, at that point in time. That's really beautiful because, you know, I think we should know all know this, right? Like, I think a moral attack is really hard to just, you know, flip the page and be done with it. You know, this is something that 
really like etches, like it, it, like it affects your existence. And, you know, having been in medicine for, for a long time, let's be honest, you see a lot of personalities changing in medicine and it could be answered by many different ways, you know, but I think something that we don't talk about, I can't help but wonder if it is moral injury. When we see someone who was maybe formerly sensitive, formerly nice, become a total ass on the wards, you know? And we have a great uh, polite term for it, jaded. It almost, it almost is like a, you know, crowning achievement. Oh, that person's been in medicine so long. They're jaded now. <laughs> like, we don't think much of it, but I don't want to be jaded. I want to take care of my patients with the same empathy and compassion that I started off with. And that's non-negotiable for me. And it should be non-negotiable for all of us, right? Like, why is it normalized that we become less empathetic and less compassionate towards our patient? Like, why is that considered normal? Why do we have to pay that price? Yeah, what, like, why? Like, it's not like as you get older, you are less compassionate towards puppies, right? Or children or babies, whatever. Like, then why is it, why do we normalize that as you grow in your career, you become less empathetic? That makes no sense to me. Yeah. And you know, like before we were mentioning the sacrifices that we, we give up, the sacrifices that we make to enter the field, to become a doctor, but... I think sometimes there's like a huge cost and a lot of us don't think about what that cost is. And I think in order, and I thought about this more as I really left, you know, corporate medicine life. Right. And I think, you know, in order to be that kind of doctor that they want us to be, I think there's a lot where we have to suppress ourselves. Those second thoughts that you have, you know, or even grieving, you can't think like that. You have to suppress them to live that kind of life. And then when does that cost become too much? Because I think even by making a decision or not, it's still a decision. And there's a cost at the end of it. Absolutely. And and it's a cost that most of us pay. Yeah either based on like who we are, our health, or it's hard to ask yourself, like, after all that, right? Like, what have I become? It's a very, very hard question. And I think most of us don't even want to think about it. Yeah, because you don't like the answer. So you don't mm-hmm. ask the question. Um, but I, I, I do want to backtrack a little bit. I I have to say I'm I'm sorry that you you had to go through all the stages and suffer the sadness and the grief. It's again, it's not you, it's the system. You know, it's um it's unfortunate that it's set up in a way that we would even lose somebody who's as compassionate as you. But, you know, I feel like I've learned, like I see it. And that was, it's changed me into who I really am. You know, don't you think like, even though that whole process is very, very difficult. I'm more of who I am than I was working for the system. That's, you know, that's (laughs) Wonderful. It, it was that's your... worth a lot. To someone else, it may not be worth much, but you know, like <laughs> that means a lot. Like you walk through it, and you gain something from it, from going through the process of experiencing that grief and sadness. And there's something to say for me when you don't regret anymore. You know, when you still like who you are. And you're speaking the truth or freaking A when you're listening to someone. Like, I didn't listen to anyone as a primary care doctor. And it took me a while to see it. But, like, I was becoming an asshole. 
and what <laughs> would have been my price, you know, like on my dying bed, on my deathbed, would I have been okay with that cost? I think no money is worth that, you know what I mean? It's like kind of like making a deal with the devil and not realizing that, you know? <laughs> yes, no, 100%. I, I, you, you, that was a good way to describe it. it. It's like making a deal with the devil. You you give a little piece of your soul every time yeah. you do And something. you didn't realize they were the devil. But the more <laughs> you live, you're like, have I sold my soul? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think if you're asking yourself questions like this, it's not a fault to yourself. It's the fact that you're actually feeling something very, very legitimate, you know? And I think, you know, there's a dear price that all of us can pay. And and I think so many doctors have committed suicide and that could have been prevented had we begun to really understand or even talk about more about these issues. Yes, yes. And I personally know people who, um, physicians who have died from suicide. One of them is my co-resident, uh, Brian Fletcher, who died in 2021, and it it's um, he was a really good doctor and an even better person, and it's it's unfortunate that sorry <laughs> that that was the outcome. And I think it has nothing to do with whether or not you're a good doctor or, a, you know, or a bad doctor. I mean, no one's really a bad doctor, I, mean, I guess, under the system. Sometimes we could do better. But there are so many great doctors. And even that ER doctor that you mentioned from New York, she was thought to be a superstar, right? Yes. Uh, Dr. Lorna Breen, yes. Um, I personally didn't work with her, but I had heard of her because uh, when I was in New York, uh, she was just such a superstar. And for somebody like Dr. Breen to feel like there is no other option but to end her life, um, it, it is truly a tragedy that that's the system we live in. Yeah, and I think within the system, sometimes, sometimes I think your resources do not lie within the system. You know, like even for doctors, if you need counseling of some sort, and you 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 decide to go through counseling within the system for doctors like yeah it's reportable and it can be used against you and i think the answers lay elsewhere or perhaps they do you know i think i think there are other ways that we can look into yeah absolutely um there's a there's a lot of stigma about mental health in general for for most people right for physicians, in addition to the stigma, there's always a concern that the state licensing board may not renew your license if you are if you disclose that you have mental health challenges. Uh, mental health is like physical health. You would never not get treatment for diabetes because you're afraid your your license will not be renewed. Uh, mental health should be no different. But unfortunately, a lot of our state licensing laws are archaic and they need to change and they will not change until doctors demand that they change, right? Because these laws are based in evidence, who knows how far back they go, right? There's no reason why a physician with mental health can't get help and still be an effective physician. Just like if they have if they have diabetes, we wouldn't take away their license. So why would we do that for any mental health challenges, right? Um, but it won't change till till we all do something about it. And you were saying earlier that Lorna Breen's uh, family started an organization, right? Yes. So the organization is called Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation. Um, they were able to successfully get a bill passed. Um, I believe the uh, the bill itself is called Dr. Lorna Breen 
bill um, in, I want to say, 2022, maybe. Um, it was actually the first bill ever passed uh, in Congress that provided resources for education and other um, allocations that focused on mental health care for healthcare workers, not just physicians, all healthcare workers. And, and some in in the bill was also resources dedicated to trying to change um, state laws about licensing. Um, so the if I could put a little uh, advocacy plug in, the bill is up for um, uh, reauthorization. If you go to their website, drlornabreen.org, you can uh, send an email to your Congress representative asking them to uh, reauthorize the fund so the work can continue. Love that. Dr. Sue, can I ask you, you've left corporate medicine, right? <laughs> well, I've left one corporate medicine and joined another corporate medicine, but the second corporate medicine is is more aligned with my moral values of how patient care should be. I get to spend enough time with my patients, which at this point in my career is non-negotiable for me. Um, if I don't get to talk to my patients, then that's not a practice that I want to stay in. And so far, it is going well, and we'll see how, what the future holds. <laughs> beautiful, and I think you really bring up a beautiful point there. I think we all have to be advocates for ourselves, not just for other people, but even for ourselves. Absolutely. And in advocating for yourself, you're not just advocating for yourself, you're advocating for better care. If If you feel that you are cutting corners because you are not given enough time, then you're cutting corners for patient care. And, and we should never be cutting corners for patient care, right? So you speaking up doesn't just impact you, it also impacts patients. So more reason why physicians really need to push back against some of the cost cutting and other measures that basically limit our ability to provide good care. I think there's a difference between striving to be better and efficiency, you know? 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes when you forget like humanity, which I feel like is the case of most medical practice now, I think that is like a very, very uh, difficult place in which to be. Exactly. Exactly. And there's so much in healthcare where there is no uh, dollar value attached to it. And from the article that you mentioned, I think one of the uh, uh, anecdote that he uses is a physician who uh, sat there and held her patient's hand while the patient was dying, right? So there is no dollar value on that, but there is a human value on that. So if, if, if we continue to prop up a system where all we're doing is looking at uh, numbers, we're definitely losing the human aspect of providing care. And people are not numbers. We're, we're, you cannot say somebody's getting good care based on just looking at people's numbers, right? So it's, it's, important. I mean, numbers are important. I'm not saying that we don't need any, um, but we do need to try to work towards incorporating humanity, keeping humanity in medicine. Totally. And <clears throat> I wanted to end with that article. I mean, uh, so a, a story from that article, you remember the New York, I mean, the, the ER doctor, I think he's also an ICU doctor where he talks about the ER was like so busy. There was like a woman who was like critically ill and then comes in this really, this known patient who has psychiatric issues. She's very draining on in the um, ER for all staff in, involved. But like, I think what's true is like, whenever someone comes in the doors, obviously they have issues, you know, and it may or may not be medical, but there's, there's issues. And because he was so busy and something never, he never forgave himself was 
she was on the stretcher. And something that he continues to remember is that he wheeled her out into the cold and left her on the stretcher and called police for them to pick her up because she had arrest warrants. You know, and I think a moment like that, I think many of us can resonate with maybe having done something similarly similar or close to that. And I think that's I think that's something to think about. Like who we've become or who yeah. are we becoming? Yeah. You're essentially losing your humanity to for at what you know, what are you getting in return? Yeah, and it's not your fault necessarily, you know. <laughs> yeah. There's bigger factors at large. You're put in a situation where that is the only outcome possible. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for choosing to be unafraid. Thank you for talking about this topic with me. And your dog is super cute. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, you, I haven't gotten attention in the last 60 minutes. <laughs> oh, so cute. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but thank you for having courage. No, Michelle, I, I really appreciate you. I Obviously, I've been listening to your podcast for a long time, and I've learned a lot from listening to you and listening to some of your guests. And I'm always so happy that you talk about medicine in a very honest way, in a way that most people don't feel that they can talk about it. And you speaking about it honestly normalizes the rest of us it normalizes it for the rest of us to be able to speak about it honestly. So I wouldn't be talking about it honestly if it weren't for listening to you for a year and a half. So I'm going to circle it back to you. This, these are seeds that you have sowed. Oh my goodness. Thank you. I think I'm going to cry, but thank you. <laughs> Mwah. See you next time on another edition of Lost or Found. Please don't forget to subscribe, tell your friends, and write us a great review. And follow us, Lost or Found Podcast, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube.